Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. This is the first time I think I've been introduced by my wife, so it's a bit of a unique situation. Um, And... uh, you describe me there, so I'm going to ask the question, have you ever been asked to describe someone whilst in their presence? Uh, perhaps your partner asked you to share what it is you love about them. Have you ever had that situation before? Well, husbands <laughs> nodding there. So Sometimes these moments can be uh, difficult, a little bit scary, um, but if you've been married a few years, you learn to be prepared for these questions. So me, of course, I have no problem doing it now. <laughs> I, I, think, I think if someone puts you on the spot, often you can just react with the things they do for you, right? Oh, you're really good at cooking. Uh, uh, you know, you make my bed uh, or something like that. You know, that's what the kids typically would say, right? Um, but, I, I've, you know, sometimes it actually takes time to ponder you do actually have to think about it. What, it. what is it you love about someone? And, you know, I've had times where God has really spoken to me about people, in, particularly in my family, that may be a little bit harder to see or often the qualities. And, and God can help you see something in a different light where maybe you took something as not a positive and God shows you, oh, but that's because they really care about this. This is really important to them. And then you're like, wow, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah, wow, God. And, and so God can just give you sort of revelation about people in your life. And um, so obviously for my wife, I mean, you all know her amazing qualities. You've experienced her hospitality, the way she makes this place beautiful. And that's one of the things I love about her is that she makes our house so beautiful. She's really a homemaker. And, and you should see our garden right now. It is absolutely fantastic. I know we were a bit disappointed because we were hoping to have some friends around yesterday and the schedules didn't work because the, the tulips are blooming and you've got the... I'm going to say all the wrong names now, the lilacs and everything. But I just know it looks nice. It's colorful, and it's really nice to sit in the garden right now, and it's because of all the hard work that she's put into it. And, and the, the other thing is, you don't maybe not know this, my, my wife is a teacher, and she has so much compassion for her students. They're not just students that she's just trying to get through the process and, and get the grades so that she can tick them off. She really cares about them, and it, 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 it's, it's funny how... It works out. Yesterday, we sold some things on Facebook Marketplace, and it turned out that it was ex-student of Lynn. And so now, all of a sudden, she was like, oh, I really hope it fits, and I really want it to work. And it's just like, you know, she just, he just got married, and I want him to have a good start to life. So it's, like, it's like another one of her extended children, all of these kids that have come through her, 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 her classes. So um, I really appreciate that. But that was not what I was going to talk about today. I just took the opportunity, because I saw you standing there looking beautiful on the stage, and I thought, here I go. Um, so you don't want to get stuck at loss of words when someone special to you asks you to describe what it is you appreciate about them. And when the authors of the Bible considered the mystery of who God was, they consistently echoed God's own proclamation when describing his character, this series that we're in, the character of God. In Exodus 34, 6, we can read Moses. He ascended Mount Sinai with tablets in his hands, ready to receive the law, the second try, and he had asked God to show him his glory. And God told him who he was because God's glory is the beauty of who he is, the great 
I am. And this is what it says in verse 6. It says, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. Now, whatever translation you have, you get a lot of different words, but they pretty much say the same thing. And you'll notice that the previous two weeks that we've had Matthew and Shettle talking about uh, the grace and the compassion of God, they're very much a pair describing God's goodness, if you like. And the latter two are another pair. They're describing God's trustworthiness. And his character could simply be described, if you had to sum up God, you could do as John said and say, God is love. That's the ultimate truth. God is love. But how does this middle characteristic, slow to anger, fit with God's love? This morning, I pray that we will see that God's slow anger is both appropriate and another expression of his great love. Now, I appreciate that the, exist- the very existence of the word anger can be jarring for many. I mean, maybe you've experienced some destructive expressions of anger in your time. Conflict in the home, abuse maybe, even moments of rage in yourself. All examples of how anger can cause collateral damage, and, and we struggle to control this emotion so often. And you may have an image of God's anger as not being so different from that. You, you, you might even be surprised that God even suggests he is slow to anger. I mean, isn't the God of the Bible mostly angry? This is what I've heard from many people, striking people down for their sins, right? Isn't that the picture that we're, we're sold so often? This is a common image in our culture that God is this angry God that just wants to rain down fire and pass judgment. But it turns out that when you actually look closer in the scripture, that God's anger is way more refined and different from how we often understand it. I've probably spent more time preparing for this sermon today than any sermon I've done. I've listened to countless hours of theology podcasts and reading books and cross-referencing my Logos app uh, because I thought this is a difficult topic. I'm talking about anger, and I'm trying to find a positive from it. So I wanted to make sure I get it right, because I know there's a lot of questions, and there's a lot of misconceptions around this emotion, this attribute, this character of God. So to understand God's anger, we need to understand the Hebrew words here. Now, unlike Shetel and Matthew, I am actually trying to sound smart this morning. (laughs) But doing a little word study. But the smartness, if I'm being honest, I'm borrowing it from the Bible Project. Those guys are incredible. And if you're interested in this topic or anything I say today, just go and check out the Bible Project, right? They're amazing. They cover everything. And I couldn't do any of that justice today in this half an hour maybe that I have with you guys. But the Hebrew phrase for slow to anger is Eric Apayim, of course, right? And it has been translated in various ways throughout history. In the NIV Bible that I have, it says slow to anger. In the King James Version in the 1600s, it said long-suffering. And in the Tyndale Version from the 1500s, I'm talking about the English Bibles here, of course, uh, it says not lightly angry. But the literal translation is actually long of nose. Of course, right? You all knew that. (laughs) Um, What does this mean? Well, a common Hebrew way of saying to become angry 
is, and his nose became hot, right? I mean, we all say that, right? Any of you say that? No. Oh, oh, John does. Yeah, yeah. He's down with the Hebrew. You know that guy. Yikah um, ap uh, is, is hot nose. And so the phrase appears 56 times in the Old Testament. Just a bit of trivia there. For example, when David's brother berated him, you know, when he left the sheep and he comes down to the battleground and he's like, you know, what are you doing here? He says, he says Eliab's nose was hot against David. He was like, you could just imagine like the cartoons, right? The nose is just about to pop off, the steam coming out of their nostrils. I think that's where it came from. And, and then, then there's the scene with Potiphar, right? When he, when he heard his wife's accusation that Joseph had been making advances, it said his nose burned, right? And when Jonah warned the people of Nineveh, he said, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from the heat, his heat of nose so that we will not perish, so next time you're in a heated exchange, you can tell that other person, hey, chill your nose, okay? They'll get it. They'll understand straight away. And in, in the Proverbs, having a long nose is associated with wisdom and great understanding. It also enables the wise person to calm any quarreling that might be going on. But by contrast, and in, I think the Anglicans call it discretion, um, in contrast, uh, those with a kabar apayim, a short nose, they're quick-tempered, and they're impatient, and they are hotheads and fools, the proverb says. And all the big-nosed people said, amen. <laughs> uh, but God doesn't actually have a nose, right? Uh, and he, he doesn't get sh- hot, surely. But this image helps us understand that God gets angry when he sees injustice, just like we do. I was teaching super kids on the, the 10 plagues of Egypt, and I asked them uh, what they felt was the appropriate response to injustice. So I gave them some examples, and they all agreed that we must have consequences. Even children understand that. Now, they don't like the punishment that's handed out, but they do expect it. That's interesting, I think. So this is something innate in us that we expect injustice to be dealt with. There is always a consequence to our actions. In the Bible, God gets angry at human violence. He gets angry at powerful leaders who oppress other humans. But the thing that makes God more hot in the nose than anything else, and I think we can all understand this, it's when his own covenant people betray him. I mean, no one makes us more angry than those that we are in relationship with, those that we are invested in. And (laughs) all the married couples going, yeah, I can kind of get that. (laughs) I mean, even your kids and stuff, you you have a little bit higher expectation on your own kids to another kid in the neighborhood, for example. Those that you are invested in, those you have a close relationship with, those are the ones that can rile you up and get you angry more than anyone else. I think we all get that one. And so that's how God is as well. So all of these examples have something in common. they all expressions of God's anger at humanity's idolatry. Humans don't take seriously the fact that we are made in the image of the almighty God. Instead of worshiping and honoring the creator with our lives, we elevate earthly things. Saw a little bit of that in Eurovision yesterday, actually, elevating power, wealth, sex, human rights, anything that is like just human creation, it's just been elevated above God, above his law. And, and 
a lot of other things, we, we elevate it to the status of a God. It's like that golden calf situation where we're worshiping things and not, not the creator. We worship the creation instead of the creator. And in the process, we can neglect. We can even step over and even destroy other people who are made in God's image. And all this fallout and the pain caused by human idolatry makes God angry. And I would argue rightfully so. There are some things that are worth getting angry about in life. Tim Keller says, many prefer the idea of a God of love, not a God who gets angry. But if you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God who loves. Because if you never get angry about anything, you don't love anything. Because if you love and you see the thing you love threatened, you're angry. That is a natural reaction. If you are indifferent, you're not in love. You know, if, if, some, if, 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 if a partner came home in a marriage and, and said, you know, I've had an affair and, and the other person was, okay. I think that that would be a pretty good sign that there's no love in that relationship, that that relationship is dead. That is not a normal reaction. The normal reaction in that situation would be anger. That should be expected. That's a sign of love. That's a sign that you have something so valuable that you want to protect it, and you don't want anything to get in the way of that, right? St. John of Chrysostom, I hope you're pronouncing it, put it so well. He's in one of the old church fathers from, I think, 300 AD. He said, he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked, but the good to do wrong. So don't be angry without cause, but definitely be angry when you do have a cause. In Hope has, has its reasons. Becky Pippett, the author, wrote, think how we feel when we see someone we love Ravaged by unwise actions or relationships, do we respond, respond with benign tolerance as we might towards just some stranger? Far from it. Anger, and this is a quote, I believe, from a Holocaust survivor, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. I don't care. Quoting from E.H. Gifford, says, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Becky adds, if I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? You know, I once counseled as a young Christian. I thought I, I knew it all. I thought I could help fix everyone. I had faith. You know, I, I met Jesus. Uh, and so my dad kind of knew. My dad's not a Christian, but he, 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 he actually asked me to help one of his friends. And so one of his friends, he, was, he, was a, he owned a, um, a secondhand scrapyard. It was a big guy, much older than me. You know, had the oil under the nails, you know, big forearms, strong guy, completely opposite of me, basically. And um, he was in the pub, right? And I, 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 my dad asked me to help. I had to counsel him, right? Because he was weeping 
which was strange to me as well. He was crying his eyes out. It was a father that was desperate. And he told me about his son. I can't even say his name. His son called Daniel. So his son had uh, basically, he'd become a criminal uh, and he had robbed him. He had robbed him and his wife because he's gotten into drugs. So he, he, had, he had come home and he realized that his son had taken everything of value just so that he could go out and get drugs. And I could hear in this guy, he was weeping, and it was, it was an anger, but it was also a sadness because he still saw his son, Daniel, you know, that young guy, sorry, emotion, I can't. Um, he still saw that guy, and it sh- this experience shook me because I didn't know what to do in that situation. I didn't understand these emotions. I was a young guy, you know, I, I didn't have anything that valuable in my life, you know. I thought, you know, I was carefree. And I didn't know what to do, but I, I, was, I just couldn't really understand this situation. You know, he was angry, but at the same time, he was just so emotional. And now, as, a, as an adult with two young, precious boys, I, I feel like I can understand the conflicted emotions. You see, anger in its pure form, without corruption, is love in motion. Passion moved towards protection of the things that you love. We hate the things that are destroying them. So when you find yourself angry, you should ask yourself, what is it that you are protecting? What is it that God is trying to protect? And that will reveal what you love. Sometimes those things are worthy of your love, but expressed out of control. But other times it reveals a heart misaligned. Pippa says, God's anger is not a cranky explosion but his settled opposition to the cancerous sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. God is angry at the things that are destroying his people because he is love. Now, while anger can be a destructive force for many of us, there are some situations when we view anger as necessary and right. When someone sees injustice happening, Getting angry is a warranted response. I think most people agree on on that. Anger can be a protective force. And this is how God's anger is expressed in the Bible. God is not volatile, volatile, angry being being who loses his cool now and then and just flies off the handle. Rather, God's anger is a measured and it's a reasonable response to injustice and evil that we see throughout the Bible. So how does the God of the Bible express his anger? Well, my first point is that God is slow to anger. The first thing to know about God is that he is slow in his anger. The Hebrew phrase long of nose is translated slow to anger because it's an idiom for patience. The meaning is that the long nose, it takes a long time to get hot, right? God is patient and he gives people a lot of chances, you know, if you skim through the Old Testament, it just looks like it's just like, bam, bam, bam. But you don't realize that there's years of, please, please, come on, turn, turn back, repent, change your trajectory. He's so patient. God is patient, and he gives people a, ch- a lot of chances to rethink their decisions and change. And the whole story of the Bible is one of great patience in the face of great rebellion, great betrayal. And we see in the life of Jesus, for example, that Jesus got angry, but it says he did not sin. 
Jesus was mad when the children were pushed aside. He was mad at the hypocrisy of the religious scribes, at those that turned his temple into a den of thieves. He was mad that Lazarus had died. But like his father, Jesus' anger was tempered by compassion and grace. Now, modern culture tells us often to vent our anger. Just get it out. Don't, don't hold it in you. But venting does not mean less anger. Often it can lead to more anger. You know, I think psychologists have looked at it and said that anger is the emotion that does the most damage to us, both physically and mentally, more than anxiety, more than fear. Anger is so, such a destructive thing. And I know many of you probably know people in your world that really struggle with anger. And, and, and we see what it does to them. But, you know, traditional cultures, on the other hand, I know some of you have come from those backgrounds where it tells us to just suppress your anger. You know, keep it in check, just hold, keep it down. But Paul seems to suggest that that is not the solution either because he says, in your anger, don't sin. So it seems to be acceptable to have anger in your life. And Jesus shows us that we shouldn't have a vent anger or no anger, but a slow anger. Now, however we handle our anger, it always tells us something important. We've been learning that in Emotionally Healthy uh, Discipleship, that it's a message. It tells us something. Anger without just cause or inappropriate to the cause, our anger is actually disordered. St. Augustine said that the biggest problem is disordered loves in us. Many things are good, But the good things are turned into ultimate things in our life. The things that are elevated above their intended station. For example, someone who doesn't want to live after a relationship ends is someone who has elevated their relationship to a place that it should never have been. That's the place for God. The anger that they feel, it reveals a bigger issue in them. A disordered love. As we've been learning in Superkids, one of the biggest villains in the Bible is Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. He is responsible for the enslavement of Israel and the attempted genocide of the Israelites' infant sons. But despite all this evil, God gives him 10 chances to change his ways. Now, we think about all the plagues and think, whoa, that's scary and that's a bit nasty. He got 10 chances, 10 chances, even after everything he did. And the Apostle Paul reflects on how God's patience with humanity is so great that we as humans can easily take this for granted. This is why he rhetorically asked the question in his letter to Romans. Romans 2, 4, it says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is patient, yes, absolutely, but there is a limit to his patience, and that limit is definitely greater than me as a parent, but there is a limit. What happens when God's patience runs out, when his nose has become sufficiently hot, even though it's really long? When, well, in that situation, we can hear that in the Bible, we see this phrase over and over again. It says, when God gets angry, He hands us over. But what does this mean? Well, so in in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks into being a cosmic order where life and humanity can flourish. 
The dark waters in Genesis 1, they represent the chaos and the disorder that the world was in. But they were not eliminated. Rather, they are tamed and they are held back by God's sustaining power. So he raised up the land, pushed the seas back, and held up the skies. And this is why in the Psalms, you celebrate, they celebrate God holding back the forces of disorder and death. And giving praise and thanksgiving just for that fact that God holds this world together. God could let go and allow creation to collapse back into disorder due to human evil. In fact, one time he did just that. The flood story in Genesis 6-9, it depicts what it looks like for God to take his hand off the steering wheel of creation and let the chaotic waters of Genesis 1 flood back in. The early chapters of Genesis offer a fundamental portrait of God, if you like, of, of his justice and his anger. When humans do great evil and they stop representing God's kingdom in the world, he hands them over to the death and disorder that they may have unleashed in creation. And you read that in the story of Adam. The phrase he handed them over is one of the most common ways that God expresses his anger in the biblical story. I mean, just an example in Judges 2.14, you, you, you can hear, find many examples of this. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of the enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. It's like, if you want to do it your way, okay, I'll let you go your own way, but see how that turns out for you. And, and, and so basically, the, their enemies were able to do to them as they wish because they stepped outside of the protection of God. And that's basically what it is to, for God to hand you over to what you have chosen, that you've chosen a different trajectory for your life. These Old Testament stories are summarized by the Apostle Paul when he talks about God's anger in his letter to the Romans, repeating the phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to a depraved mind. It's kind of like that prodigal, prodigal son story that we heard last week. He was saying, I don't care for this family's refuge anymore. I want money and I want to do things my way. And the father obliged. He gave him over. He's like, you can, you, can, you, can, you can do things your way. You can go your own way. And this is what God says to Moses about what he would do when Israel reaches their limit of corruption he says it in Deuteronomy 31, 16 as a warning to 18. I'll pick it up in 17. It says, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. Again, there's a lot of heat and fire uh, analogy there. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, it is not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us. But I will surely... Hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. The biblical authors, they want us to understand that God's anger is always a response to human betrayal and evil and is expressed through handing over humans to the logical consequences of their decisions. In other words, God's anger is expressed by humans, by giving humans what they want. Letting them have it their way. That's the wrath of God. You know, a lot of people talk, talk about the wrath of God is like him like squatting people. But actually, the wrath of God is like him leaving us. It's him 
turning his face away. It's him handing us over to, to our ways. That's the worst place you can be. That is the wrath of God. A lot of times I think we get that twisted. We somehow think that God is the author of our punishment. I think Brian Zahn puts it really well. He says, yes, sin has consequences, and sometimes they are truly horrible consequences. But the deeper truth is that we are more punished by our sins than for our sins. I'd like to invite the band up now as I come to a close. Now, I realize this was a pretty meaty, tough subject this morning. Not, some, not very light reading, hearing about God's judgment, God's anger, when people go wrong, when people try to do things their own way. But of course, the, the story of the Bible, it, it is a story, and it's, it's a love letter to humanity, and, it, and it's good news. And I want, to see, I want people to see that the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're not in conflict with each other. It's not the angry God of the Old Testament versus the nice God of the New Testament. God is consistent. God is, has the same heart, the same desire for us. He wants us to, to live in relationship with him. He doesn't want to give us over to, to our ways, our destructive ways. He doesn't want to hide his face from us. He wants to live in a relationship with us. In the Bible, it's a tragedy when God hides his face and gives us what we think that we want. So many people are pursuing what they think they want. They are misled. And it means that humanity can't accomplish the task. This is a great tragedy. They can't accomplish the task that they were created for, to be his royal image-bearing people. This is why the story of the Bible, it finds its climax in the person of Jesus. God was not, he wasn't content to just let humanity destroy itself. It wasn't just like, you know, I'm done. God doesn't think like that. So he came to rescue us. And here is how Paul reflects on this in the letter to the Romans. In Romans 5, 6, 11, it says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, this is not a noble death. He didn't die just for good people. He died for those that were sinning, those that were rebelling. He died for them. Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. Amen. Hallelujah. In God's anger, humanity has been handed over to death. But that isn't the end of the story. It doesn't have to be the end of the story. God's love is even greater. In Paul's mind, it is God's own love that answers to God's own wrath. Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, Instead of God hiding his face or handing us over, he has reconciled himself to us. And in turn, we get to experience God's own powerful, creative life in us. He put us on a different trajectory. Whoever and wherever we are, if we feel like God has right to be angry with us today, I'm sure many of us have reason to believe that this morning. 
God's patience is inviting you this morning to repentance. Return to him now, then forever, and in returning, find rest in him. I want to just invite you to stand up now as we close the service. I'd like to just pray over each and every one of us. Thank you, God. Lord, we thank you for the, the ultimate truth. Despite any lies in the world that might try to tell us a different picture of who you are and how you are, Lord, we know that you are love. You are the true expression of love, Lord. Not these pale imitations of love, Lord God. You are love. And it is because you love us, Lord God, that you are patient with us. It is because you love us that you get angry when you see something destroying us, Lord. That you hate sin. You hate to see your children hurt, Lord God. That you move in your passion for us, Lord, to protect us. Lord, that your heart is that you will return to us, Lord. Even those that you have turned away from, that you have handed over, that may be out there right now, Lord, that are living their own life, pursuing their own futile ways, Lord God. You are longing for them to come back into the fold, Lord. Scripture says that you would leave the 99 to go for the one, Lord. That is your heart. You're a good God. You love your creation, Lord God. I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that we would have an ordered loves in our life, Lord. That we wouldn't elevate anything above you. Nothing that is created, we would elevate above our creator. May you have number one place in our hearts, Lord God. May we live for you, Lord God. And at times, Lord, when, when we mess up, Lord God, when we, when we go down the wrong path in life, I thank you for your great patience, Lord, that you call us to repentance, Lord God. And I thank you, Lord, that anyone who motions towards you, Lord, you will motion towards them, Lord God. Just like the prodigal son was in welcome back into the home, Lord God, as if nothing had happened, Lord that you gave him your best. You didn't hold anything back, Lord. You didn't hold any grudges, Lord God. And we know that that is true because of what Jesus did, that, that he took upon him the wrath. He drank that cup of wrath, Lord. He took upon him the anger for all the sin and all the shame that we have been responsible for, Lord. And he buried it. And as he was raised to life, Lord, we know that we can share in that life, Lord God. I pray for each and every one that we would They would live in that life, Lord. Live in that abundant life, Lord. That we would see the hope in your story, Lord God. That your Bible is a love letter to each and every one of us, Lord. Calling us, Lord, to be who we were created to be. The royal image bearers of the almighty God. The one that is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. That is who you are. That is your glory. You are beautiful, Lord. You are the great I am.